Welcome to History Nerd United Podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Today, author Giles Tremlett. Fantastic conversation. You're going to hear a British accent, but this man has become a full-on Spaniard. He's written España, a short history of Spain. Fantastic book. Goes over a lot of stuff in a very short period of time. Highly recommend it. Giles is very interesting. He's got some great anecdotes, and let's get to them. I'm going to shut up. Let's talk with Giles right now. And here we are with author Giles Tremlett. Giles, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. I'm here in Spain, so uh, we've got a bit of a difference in the timings, but it's good to be talking to you. Well, I want to uh, jump to something first. We're going to talk about your new book, Espana. Um, loved it. I was doing my research. I saw on Twitter that there was a fantastic idea that you retweeted. The first book of yours that I read was Catherine of Aragon. And you retweeted somebody saying, this needs to be a miniseries just about her. I just want to say on record, I need to see that show because I didn't get enough of her in the Tudors from back in the day. Well, actually, that tweet was pretty good because she's always this kind of secondary character, this kind of mousy, Spanish, pious, Catholic, and who had a way of the rest of the story. Whereas, in fact... You know, she shapes the whole story. She lasted three times as long, I think, as the other five wives together. And, um, you know, if it wasn't for her refusing to divorce Henry VIII, we wouldn't have had a lot of the palaver we've had these days with uh, the death of the queen, the new king, who's head of the church. Why is he head of the church? Because Catherine of Aragon refused to divorce Henry VIII all those years ago when we had our first Brexit. Which I find really funny. You know, we remember Henry VIII and all of that stuff. But she was beloved in England at the time. And I think a lot of people forget that. Like, she had a lot of fans back in the day. Yeah, well, I mean, she was tradition, really, whereas Henry VIII was was revolution. It doesn't look like it these days where Henry VIII is sort of, you know, the standard British interest in history, as I always say, is stick Henry VIII in the cockpit of a Spitfire and make him fly around in World War II. And you sort of just about summed up what, most British people like about history, the Tudors and, and the Second World War. She's the key person, and you're absolutely right. We do need a series, which is why I'm about to set up a production company with someone. If you know any of your listeners want to invest, we're easy to get hold of. It, it'll make millions, I'm sure of it. Well, jumping back to a little bit of background on you. So you're living in Spain right now, but I think people might be able to pick up a slight British accent. But you've lived a lot of different places. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit growing up? And I mean, how many countries? It was like five or something. Yeah, I sort of lost track, actually, after a while. My father was military. And back then, you know, the British Army, what was the saying? You know, see the world and kill people, I think, was the, sort of what they had on the on the T-shirts, which was pretty um, cynical. But anyway, there was a lot of sort of traveling around the around the world. And I kind of thought that's what I'd do for the whole of my life. You know, I went to uh, college in Britain at Oxford, and then I left and I thought, okay, you know, I'm setting off now. And I went to live in Barcelona for a while. Then I went to live in Lisbon for a while. And then I went back to London and kind of hated it. So I came to Madrid, thinking I would stay for like, you know, six months to a year. And 30 years later, I'm still here. And I'm actually Spanish now. So I've got on the whole hob. What made you finally decide to stay in Spain? Because you were writing for The Guardian, right? Or might even still be writing. Yeah. Well, actually, to begin with, I was writing for uh, an American news agency, UPI, United Press International, once great, sadly now sort of a, a shadow of it. 
of what it used to be. So I was hired to set up a new office in Madrid. And then I met my wife. And, you know, that's it. Love dictated. And I had my children. And, you know, and actually, the truth is, Spain at the time, we're talking about the 1990s, the early 2000s, uh, was a country that was kind of moving forward at such a kind of helter-skelter pace that, truth be told, you didn't have to change countries to get the thrill of moving somewhere new because the country itself changed so fast that um, you were kind of constantly trying to just kind of keep up with it. So that was pretty cool. And I got to cover North Africa, so Morocco and uh, Algeria and Tunisia and places like that and Portugal as well. So I had a pretty good time, actually. And I still do work for that right for the... Life for the Guardian, but um, on their long reads section. Now, I don't want to turn you into a travel guy, but I was just thinking of somebody who just wrote a short history of Spain. I get some sort of weird layover. They say you're going to be in Spain for two days. What do I have to see if I only have 48 hours in Spain? Okay, well, we're going to have to assume that you've been laid over in Madrid, because if you want to travel anywhere, you've already used up your two days anyway. So let's say you've been you've been laid over in Madrid. No, Madrid's a funny city. It's not as beautiful as Barcelona, which has this sort of great Gothic quarter and all this wonderful sort of 19th century architecture. Madrid's a bit sort of scruffy, but it's a city with a very lively character. So actually the best thing you can do is go clubbing, frankly, or go out to dinner or go out to dinner and then go clubbing, which is what people in Madrid would do. And basically... You've got two days. You have no need to go to bed in two days. So you just keep going. If you fit in, you know, the Prado Museum and the and the Reina Sofia Museum while you're there and, and you're kind of good to go. Oh, clubbing. I'm I'm too old for it. I want to go to sleep right now. You just mentioning it. <laughs> My eldest brother actually just visited Spain and I remember him, you mentioning Barcelona. Barcelona was magnificent to him. He he's still talking about it that, you know, if he's only got one more trip, he's he's going to go back to Spain, go back to Barcelona. I mean, it was really for him damn near enchanting and he's not effusive about a lot of things. But Spain, he absolutely was. Good. Now, how many years for you did it take before your Spanish was really good, that you felt like it's as good as somebody who was born there? Well, it probably still isn't, to tell you the truth. I mean, you know, I was one of those people, I weirdly, I was kind of good at languages at school, so they made me take all the exams early so that I didn't have to do them anymore, as if languages were kind of waste of time. And uh, so it was only in my 20s that I decided, hang on, I don't actually speak any languages. You know, I did my French exams when I was 14 and, and Latin at uh, 15. So I had to learn when I was in my early 20s, which is already old for learning a language. But I had, had a kind of, you know, obsessive thing about it. So I came to, actually, I went to Barcelona for two years, refused to speak English to anybody, went to Lisbon for a year and a half, refused to speak English to anybody there. And so, you know, worked up workable Spanish and Portuguese. And then here, yeah, I don't know when my Spanish got to be good enough, but I've, you know, I do a lot of radio work here. I'm a sort of radio commentator or a, a public affairs commentator on television. And, you know, think of those people you see at the desk sitting beside CNN presenter or someone. Well, I do that kind of thing here. But I never feel that my Spanish is good enough. I always feel there's some tiny little error in there sometimes. Or the accent isn't isn't that good. But then I think of Kissinger and I think, well, that's okay. 
it has to be doubly difficult when you're a journalist, right? Because you're going back and forth between the Spanish and the English, and you need to know the Spanish well enough to take that information, then put it into English to send it back wherever you're writing for. I mean, it's really immersing you in both at the same time. Yeah, so I'm fluent in Spanish. What I would never claim to be properly is bilingual. My children are bilingual because they grew up speaking Spanish and speaking English, and that's proper bilingual. If you if you learn a language, I don't think you ever really get to be properly uh, bilingual unless you're one of those kind of, you know, there are people who can learn like 20 languages or something in there. Well, they just have you know, different wiring in their head. But I'm very glad to, to speak another language, two other languages. You know, it opens up the world view and you see different cultures and you learn to, you know, think about things in different ways. And, you know, you realize that, you know, people write in different ways, even, you know, it's not the same to write in Spanish as, as it is to write in, in English, that Spaniards write, have a different concept of what writing is. So Latin Americans, different again to... The Spaniards say you kind of, you know, it opens you up uh, culturally and um, it's a very valuable thing, or it has been to me. Well, let's talk about it. España, you, you wrote a short history of it. Now, I read your Catherine of Aragon book. I read your book on Isabella, and I, I love them, right? Um, not short biographies, though. There was plenty of details in there like I love. So I need you to just be honest with me. Were you planning on writing the entire in-depth history of Spain and said this is going to take too long and went with the short one? How did you decide to write this book? No, no, no. Actually, in, the, in this case, it was a total relief to be writing a short book because uh, after Isabella of Castile, I wrote a history of the international brigades in the Spanish Civil War, which was even longer, went up to, I think, 750 pages or something. And I was completely fed up with writing long books. And actually, it was, you know, a publishing company came to me and said, you know, we'd really like a, a brief history of Spain. And I said, brief? Let's go. Not that it isn't a challenge. I then I actually I met another historian, a Spanish historian, who'd also written a brief history of Spain. He said, yeah, but it's still the same stretch of history. So you've still got to know it all. You've just got to then squeeze it into a smaller space. So actually, on the one hand, it's less. On the other hand, it's more because it's literally the whole of Spanish history. So, Also, when I'm reading it, I wonder if a new author who doesn't have your credentials can write it. Because when you're writing a short history of anything, you have to do some generalizations. You have to write at certain points where it's like, hey, I'm telling you this is what's important, right? This is what I'm choosing to focus on. Where somebody with your credentials, you know, it's, oh, Giles is writing this. I'm with him on this. Whereas somebody who just comes out of nowhere it might be a little bit harder for them to have the background and the trust of the reader to say, oh, I'm going to go along with you that this is really the short pieces that I need to know as opposed to the whole history. Or am I overthinking it? No, I don't think you're overthinking it at all. I think it would be impossible for someone who didn't already know an awful lot of, of Spanish history. I mean, you know, what you're doing is you're basically presenting people with what you think the important thing is or the, the thing that that explains a particular era. You know, I'm a narrative historian. I like to tell stories. So in a in a brief history, you know, it's like, okay, so how do I, you know, tell a story that explains Islamic Spain, for example? And so you have to be, you know, very aware, first of all, that you're doing that. And so your story has to be representative, but at the same time, you have to make sure that you've put into that narrative all the background so that the reader actually takes away the full knowledge almost without realizing that that's what they've done. 
you know, to me, a good narrative historian is someone who you read and you sort of the readers are kind of get carried away by the story and they're just following it. And uh, but at the same time, they're getting an awful lot of history kind of rammed down their throats, but not in that this is good for you. Read this now, you know, however hard it is sense. But I'm going to tell you a story. And this story is going to, you know, actually inform you about everything along the way. And, you know, and that's quite a hard trick to pull off. It falls very much in the sort of tradition of first of British historians and also of American historians and North American historians, are very, very good narrative historians. And um, But for the Spaniards, because I always publish in Spanish as well, it's a bit weird. You know, they're, they're used to kind of history as some dry, boring subject that they do at school, which is full of facts and is kind of given to them as if it's kind of almost scientific, completely objective, and uh, that they just sort of have to take the medicine, you know, and swallow it down, however, you know, disgusting it tastes. And so when I'm telling them stories, which is what you're doing in narrative history, you know, sometimes they kind of look at me and they're grateful, but they kind of don't know whether to trust me because, you know, hang on, if it's fun, it can't be history, basically. That's why I like podcasts like yours, because history is fun. Uh, we don't have to take it that seriously. Which period of Spanish history did you have the least insight on when you started this? Which part of it needed the most research for you when writing this? So I think that's probably the 18th century. The 18th century is a sort of bit of a non-century in Spain. It's where there's a handover from the Habsburg dynasty to the Bourbon dynasty. People like to say you go from being German to French, and the Bourbons, who were French in origin and therefore very centralizing, obviously had a, had an impact. But mostly sort of nothing terribly interesting happened. And it's also it's one of those kind of end of empire moments where you can see everything's kind of gearing up to go wrong, but it hasn't quite gone wrong yet. And the 19th century in Spain is full of, you know, ghastly wars and and um, and uprisings and you know everyone's killing each other and there's lots of turmoil and you can feel the end of empire happening and it does happen in the 19th century with the americans of course you know doing the final blow in 1898 and and sinking the spanish fleets off cuba and the philippines in i think you know six hours on each battle or something it was a you know turkey shoot so yeah so for me the um the 18th century was was difficult and you know one of those holes that I wanted I actually very much wanted to fill in and that was one of the reasons I was glad to write a brief history was actually to teach myself about those few little holes that I still had left that needed filling in so that I could you know feel that I really had a feeling for the whole story from the beginning to the end the eye opening aspect for me was Spain as we know it as a country is relatively new when you look at a lot of Europe, that Spain didn't come together as a unified country until a little bit later than a lot of these other countries that we would talk about. And even, you know, towards the end of the book, you kind of point out that there's still big differences between certain places in Spain. Was that something that you were pretty well aware of, or did that get highlighted when you were doing your research? So there's a massive debate about this. If a Spanish conservative was listening to you, they be angrily denouncing you for not knowing that, you know, Spain is the oldest nation in Europe, of course, or the oldest large nation in Europe, because when Isabel and Ferdinand got married uh, at the end of the 15th century, 
something that looked a bit like modern Spain actually came into being, even though it then sort of undid itself. And so Spain actually spends an awful lot of time arguing about itself. When did this start? Because it was actually a bunch of kingdoms that kind of slowly came together. And I tend to be on the sort of late end of the scale. And I think, well, Spain didn't really come together until the beginning of the 19th century when it was invaded by Napoleon. And suddenly all these Spaniards found something in common, which was kicking Napoleon's ass, if you want, you know, which is, okay, we don't like these people. Let's get them out of here. And we're going to have to work together. And suddenly we're a nation, you know, because we've got some common cause and it's getting rid of the French. So for me, that's when Spain started. But of course, within that, Spain is, and I'm sure, you know, people who listen to your podcast know, who listen to your show know that, you know, we have Catalonia, we have the Basque country, we have Galicia, we have all these, each with their own language, who form part of Spain, but some of whom would rather not, frankly, and would like to be independent. And so one of the reasons, in fact, I start this book off with the brief history with this kind of scene of the of the Spanish uh, soccer team winning the uh, the World Cup in whenever it was, 1996 or 8 or something. And um, when it comes to singing the national anthem, they have nothing to sing because Spain has never been able to agree on the words to a national anthem because it can't agree about its own history. And one of the things it can't agree about is when it actually came into existence and whether it's a kind of nation of nations or a single nation. Anyway, so the long and the short of it, you know, at Spanish at sporting events, you watch everyone else is singing their national anthems and the, you know, the Spaniards are humming or whistling or whatever, because they've just got a they've got a tune, they've got a melody. They don't actually have any words to sing. So all of which is a very long answer to your um question. So Spain does have this kind of long history. Iberia, really. I mean, when you go back in time, the fact that Iberia, which is Spain plus Portugal, this sort of big ball on the left hand, bottom left hand side of of Europe, does have a unified history just by geographical coincidence. You know, there's a great big mountain range between us and France. It's called the Pyrenees. And so Spain is this weird, or Iberia is this weird place, which is on one side, it's Mediterranean. On the other side, it's Atlantic. At the top, it's European because it's connected to France. And at the bottom, we're only nine miles away from Africa, which is why we have, you know, a huge history with Carthage and other, you know, we have a huge history of being part of the Mediterranean, part of things that are going on in North Africa. The Islamic invasion, the Muslim invasion of Spain in the 8th century is because you can get across so easily from what nowadays is Morocco. So there's an African history to Spain as well. And then I always say all you have to do is then draw on your map the circular currents in the Atlantic and the winds, and actually Spain is kind of connected to the Americas as well. That's how Christopher Columbus got there. Coming back the other way requires skill and knowledge, and that's probably, you know, what saved Columbus. So Spain is this kind of hyper-connected country, really. Iberia is. Now, all these things mix into Spanish history and actually make it very different in that sense to the rest of of Europe. You know, our history is not, you know, we're not like Italy, we're not like France, we're not like um, Northern Europe or the United Kingdom, where I'm from. You know, we have a very different and very rich history, which shows up anybody who comes here. You know, we, we don't know what to do with all our monuments. You get tiny villages, you know, 100 people who've got 
I know, a medieval castle, an Islamic graveyard or a Jewish graveyard from the 10th century or the 9th century. Some of these things just fall down because there's, there's too much of this stuff. It seems, and this is just, you know, my American perspective, myths are more attached to Spanish history and the Americas than any other country, right? Columbus, there's a lot of misunderstandings. I mean, I found this one out myself. It, they weren't named the Nina Pinta and the Santa Maria. Those were nicknames, but a lot of myths persist. I was thinking about this when I got to the portion of your book on the Inquisition, which the Inquisition was terrible. There's no excusing it, but it also wasn't nearly as bad as people seem to remember it and the way it was reported and the way a lot of history books talk about that. And you focus and call that out. Were you finding a lot of things like that as you were writing this, these kind of myths that have persisted and like people think something was one thing, but in history it really wasn't? Well, yes, definitely. And that happens a lot, probably with all countries. I mean, Spain got a very bad press way back in the 16th and 17th century. In fact, if you ever want to write a history book in Spain and sell loads, you just have to write a book about what they call the Black Legend which someone does about every three or four years. And some of it's exaggerated, but but a lot of it isn't. And it's about how Spain was the world's first global superpower. And so, you know, people hated Spain and the rest of Europe, especially the Italians, because the Spaniards also actually owned half of Italy. They owned the kingdom of Naples and, uh, and Sicily. They even put their own Spaniards into the Vatican, the Borgias, you know, we talk, we think of these sort of ghastly Italian popes. They weren't, they were Spaniards, ghastly, but Spaniards. And then from Mexico, they sail into Asia, to the Philippines. So we've got this first empire in which the sun never set. And the Italians and the Protestants in Europe hate this. And so there's a lot of dissing of Spain. And the Inquisition is one of the kind of favorite things to go for because it's so obviously uh, ridiculous. But in fact, if you look at the history of witch hunting in the Protestant countries of Europe, you know, the number of people who die in Protestant witch hunts is far, far, far greater than the number of people who are killed by the, the Inquisition. Even though the Inquisition sort of survives there for centuries, but it actually only has a sort of first spasm of violence and then pretty much tails off, becomes sort of like a sort of insidious but not terribly violent kind of secret police force. So you know you're always being watched. You know, nothing is necessarily going to happen to you. And in fact, the real story of the Inquisition to me is that it was a massive anti-Semitic moment in Spanish history. It was really based on the idea that Spain, which had the world's highest Jewish population in the 14th century, uh, many of whom had converted to Christianity basically under the threat of violence uh, at the end of the 14th century. And there was suddenly this idea that these new Christians weren't really Christians. They were still Jews. It was a, a race thing rather than a beef thing. I mean, most Christians were pretty bad Christians anyway. They didn't have the faintest idea how to practice their religion properly. And lots of the converts were actually, you know, more on the nail about being Christians than the old Christians. The trouble was there was this sort of quite educated, formerly Jewish population which suddenly became part of the Christian population that had the same rights and could go for the same jobs 
and uh, and then became a kind of competition to the old Christians. And they used to have, in the 14th century, there were plenty of episodes of violence in Spanish cities between old Christians and, and new Christians. And the Inquisition is sort of where the monarchs allow themselves to be persuaded by a bunch of sort of radical racist priests, if you want. Now, children or grandchildren of Jewish converts can't be trusted. The Inquisition is structured in such a way with anonymous denunciation, with torture and death if you didn't admit guilt and something a lot lighter if you did admit guilt, that it just produced this sudden mass of confessions. People were confessing because it was just easier. But the more people confessed, the more convinced they were. All the new Christians were still secret Jews. And so it sort of became, you know, like a snowball running down a down a mountainside. You know, this is when Spain expels its Jews. And it's really the Inquisition. And there's a the, the head of the Inquisition, Tomás de Torquemada, is not only the person who really sets the Inquisition going, but he's also the first person to write, and it's written out in his own hand, and it's for his own bishopric, which is Girona, the first expulsion of the Jews from Spain. And a few weeks later, the same text is signed by Isabel and Ferdinand, the monarchs, also expelling the Jews from the whole of Spain. But it's the same text. It's written by the Inquisition. So that's what the Inquisition is. It's this massive anti-Semitic organization, basically, that ensures the expulsion of the Sephardic Jews because the Jews who leave Spain become the Sephardic Jews. And it's this sort of attempt to purify Spain, which which was a very mixed country. It still had lots of Muslims and it had lots of Jews. And for visitors from the rest of Europe were often shocked by how tolerant Spain was. And this was a moment where it decided to grasp onto an idea of Christian purity, and that involved expelling the, the, the Jews, forcibly converting the Muslims at the same time, who were then later expelled anyway. And so, you know, it's a ghastly moment, but it's, it's sort of remembered for the wrong things. <laughs> so here's the thing. The plain fact is the Inquisition, in terms of, you know, if we're going to measure, you know, bodies buried in the, in the ground because of it, it was a far less violent thing than Protestant witch hunts, which, of course, Protestant witch hunts also uh, targeted women, particularly, which is another twist to that story. Now, you had to do the short history. Was there a bunch of stuff that you had to cut out? I mean, have you figured out your next book because you just had to cut a huge section out and you're like, I need to dig into this more? Or was it pretty easy to kind of streamline it? I mean, there's stuff you have to cut out everywhere. So, I mean, it's a brief history. So by definition, there's loads of stuff that you're just not going to put in there. So in that sense, it wasn't a problem at all. I love the 20th century and I also love the 15th century. So I would probably have gone into both things at greater length if I could have. But there was no room for that. But now I'm working on a biography of Franco. So that'll be plenty of 20th century. And is it really hard, you know, especially as a historian, you, you take it right up to present day. Is it hard to write the present day? Because there is so much we don't know, right? Like something is reported this week and the next week somebody says, oh, that's not actually what happened. Our bad. We just got depressed too fast. Is that more difficult for a historian like yourself who wants to get the facts right, but they're so new, you're not quite sure that you can trust everything 100%? Not that you ever can as a historian, but still. 
Yeah, well, I mean, okay, so I'm I'm one of those uh, people who combine history and journalism. So I've been on both sides of that fence. I mean, there are some historians who say, you know, anything before the 15th century is guesswork and anything from the 19th century on, onwards is journalism anyway. I'm not scared of the of the facts of the present. Uh, in fact, I quite enjoy writing them down and imagining what they will look like to people in 100 years' time or 200 years' time because I'm also sort of wearing my my historian's hat at the same time. In that sense, it wasn't difficult for me. I take a sort of slightly wicked glee, shall we say, uh, in doing it because I know, obviously, you know, if journalism is the first draft of, of history and sort of magazine journalism is the second draft, well, you know, brief histories that take you right up to the present are probably the third draft. But, you know, you, you know a lot already. So I'm sure, you know, in 100 years' time, someone will pin down something that's wrong. But um, but I'm not too bothered about that. I do need to point this out. This is not something I've ever had to say about a book. But people really need to get the physical copy because it's gorgeous. Did you pick the illustration specifically or is it a team deal? Because... The book is by itself gorgeous, and the illustrations are really striking and add to what you're writing. I'm glad you say that because we had a bit of a debate about this where my publishing company, half of them really wanted to go big on illustrations, and there was a sort of another half of them who wanted to democratize the book so that it would be easily available and cheaper um, and not have so many illustrations in it. And there was a kind of, not a war, but a, a debate about, you know, do we go big on illustrations? I love illustrations and, you know, so much history can be told simply by a picture and, uh, you know, and, and five lines of text underneath. Uh, I think actually for a brief history like this, it's particularly valuable to put those things in. So I was delighted, actually, when they came to me and said, you know, ha, you can have 50 illustrations. You know, normally you get 16 or something for a 700 page book so yeah so i had a lot of fun digging those out and um you know i could have gone to 100 quite easily but we had to control ourselves but yes very beautiful book the maps have been extremely uh, nicely done as well so i'm uh, as a as a sort of item i'm very pleased with it and i hope readers will get that sensation as well there's something very tactile about this book which i guess is why you actually have to buy it physically and then the joy of just you know going back to the illustrations these days i'm writing something for the members of the uh, royal academy of art in london who are having the hispanic society of new york is sending over a lot of its stuff for an exhibition and it's fun to write around art because you know that the people already have another level of experience or they're having that level of experience at the same time as they're reading what you're writing and you can play against the pictures as you're writing and so the kind of the level of understanding ratchets up pretty quickly so yeah no it's a very beautiful book i'm very pleased with my with my publishers and generally, for me, it's not hard to talk me into buying a physical book. I'm a purist, call me a nerd, that loves having the physical book anyway. But I think in this case, the first half of the people who are arguing, I think, are right. It, it, it takes it to another level. And especially with how you talk about these different pieces of Spain, physically seeing a map so that you can understand where these places are and how they interact, it adds a, a lot more to the narrative and put something in your brain that you can actually see. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And one of for me, actually, one of the one of the sort of most interesting things is to see maps of Spanish North America and look at it and go, wow. Okay, so I thought you know it was all about the British and the you know the indigenous uh, people of North America. And when you look at the map like this, you say, hang on, you know, the United States especially has, you know, a deep past with Spain. It has a deep Hispanic history. You know, it has nothing to do with recent immigration, with Puerto Rico, with, you know, it goes all the way back to before the founding of the country itself. And I think that, to me, that's very interesting. And, um, and uh, you know, I want to read a lot more. And it sounds like there's still some Spanish people that are kind of upset they couldn't hold on. And it would have been a lot of money today. Some people are. I mean, I actually think Spain's done very well since its dictator died in 1975 because I'm British as well. And I can see what's happening to the United Kingdom at the moment, which to me is sort of in a full phase of disintegration. And uh, just how difficult it is to get over having had an empire. Decline is something that's very, very difficult to get to, to deal with. And Spain basically managed that in 1975. Franco is like the last, the dictatorship of uh, which lasts from the 19 uh, from 1936 or 39, depending where you are, until he dies in his bed in 1975. Is like the dying moments of a of an imperial body, if you want, where Spain finally sort of almost humiliates itself first by having a civil war, then by having uh, a dictator who. Nobody really feels any great affection for nowadays. And it's like, okay, we finally got rid of the idea that we are an exceptional race whose job is to go out and rule the world and spread our values and spread our religion and show the world how to behave. No, we're not. We're as ordinary as, as anybody else, and we just got to get on with it. And, uh, and ever since Spaniards took that attitude, life in Spain has got a whole lot better. Um, you know, the previous two centuries were a disaster. The last half century has been uh, fantastic with its ups and downs, but, you know, basically fantastic. Well, last question for you, Giles. And we touched on this a little bit, right? For a lot of people, even America too, history is that boring thing that you were taught over and over again in school. And now people say, I don't read history, right? Like, I'm not in school anymore. I don't need to do it. It's boring. If one of those people was said to you, why should I read Espana, what would you respond? Wow. Well, I would say to them, guess what? There are lots of lovely pictures. <laughs> now I would say to them, listen, it's thousands and thousands of years of history. But for someone in the, in the States, it's also a way of understanding how something happened in Europe in the 15th century, which meant that some kind of European types sailed across the ocean, across the Atlantic, and started something that, you know, ended up with the United States existing. And in fact, started this massive shift in the sort of the center of global power and commerce and all sorts of things where the Atlantic Ocean actually becomes the sort of new center of the world. You could almost put a pin in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and say, this is the Atlantic period, you know, Asia's had its go. So there's lots to understand. And also, every country has its own history. But in some way, whenever you read another country's history, there's always something in it that speaks to your own country's history, where you go, oh, wow, 
okay, that sounds a lot like what happened here in, you know, whenever. And that educates you to look at your own history in a slightly different way. Also, not to think that you're that exceptional, which is, you know, important to, I speak, you know, as a fully paid up member of the Anglo-Saxon world. And we do have that particular problem, whether we're British or American. It's good to also to see these large narratives, to know that, you know, countries do not stay on top forever. They don't. It's obvious. I mean, it's blindingly obvious, in fact. You know, they go up, they come down, you know, they disintegrate, they reform. Um, you know, if you open up the lens uh, over time and start thinking about what a particular country means and you place that country in a space of 2,000 years, suddenly it becomes a lot smaller and less permanent and less robust less absolute you know we're we're born into cultures and we think they're eternal but they're not because otherwise history wouldn't exist where everything would still be the same you know so you know that's why to me it's never ever boring to read about history um and i think spain is perhaps you know because it's been through those moments of being absolutely you know world beating and then coming down again and trying to find itself and asking itself lots of questions about what it is and how people with different religions and different races can get on and, you know, what the way forward, you know, I mean, every debate has been had here. And so it's the world in a microcosm, if you want. Well, Giles, the book is fantastic. Everybody should get it and everybody should get it in physical form. And give it to your granny for Christmas. She'll love it too. Well, I got a brother who's going to love a copy, so I'm going to make sure to send that one out. Good, good, good. Thank you, Giles. Appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. And that's it for this episode. Giles, thank you so much for coming on. España, as we talked about, buy the physical book, people. You will not regret it. The thing is a great read, and it is also a piece of art that you're going to want on your bookshelf. Reach on out to us at social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the blog, wherever you want to find us, go listen to the podcast, give us reviews, five star, please leave comments on the blog. Let us know what you want to see more of, what you want to hear more of, what you want to read more of. Until then, take it easy, nerds.